Amen. Take your Bibles this morning quickly to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 6. Hebrews, chapter number 6. Now, I have to be very frank with you this morning. The book of Hebrews is, without question, my favorite New Testament book. And there's a very good possibility, because I am quite indecisive at times, it might be my favorite book of the entire Bible. Hebrews at times feels very Old Testament as it describes the procedures and the practices of of the high priest. It feels at times very Jewish in Old Testament. And then it tells us of New Testament theology when it comes to concepts that the law was just a shadow of things to come, that it was just partial revelation, but Through this book, we study that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the shadows that were pointing to Him the whole time. I love the book of Hebrews. In fact, if I had something to compare it to, I would say that the book of Hebrews is much like eating at a fine dining restaurant. And no, I'm not talking about Dairy Queen. I know that may surprise some of you husbands as you take your wives to Valentine's. But I will tell you... My wife and I have had the privilege of going to some very, very high-end restaurants. And they operate entirely differently than, say, our local restaurants do. Now, local restaurants make good food, but the, the higher in quality and the higher in, I guess, star ratings you get, the thinking on the menu is done for you. Meaning, when you go to Chili's, you say, I want the... Baby back, baby back ribs. You know, you say you want the ribs and then I want a side of fries and maybe some corn. You did the thinking. You put your meal together. But the higher in quality you go, you begin to see that the chef prepared the protein to be enhanced by the sides. And and how you can see that a potato puree can work in conjunction with the actual steak and the sauce that was designed for it all to bring it all together. And so what I think Hebrews is, and it's a comparison, maybe not a great one, but I think it is fine dining for the Christian. It is how you see it all coming together. And there's deep meat and there's tasty nuggets, but it all comes together to work in glorious truth and tandem together. Now we come to Hebrews chapter 6, verse number uh, 9. The Bible says, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. That's the title of the sermon this morning. Better things. Better things. Who doesn't want... To not just to settle for good things, who wouldn't always want better things? And that's what is being spoken of here. Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. And things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye had showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister." And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now this is all what we'll study today. And then an example is given of Abraham and a promise made by God to Abraham. These are all working in conjunction with one another. For... When God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, 
he sware by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, that immutability means the unchangeability, immutability, it cannot change, the immutability of His counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable or two unchanging things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into the, the, uh, that within the veil, whither the forerunner is entered for us entered, even Jesus made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now the book of Hebrews, as I mentioned, is by doubt, with no question, my favorite book of the New Testament. As I was studying it last night, my wife can attest, I sat there with tears in my eyes, not even studying the passage that we're talking about today, just reading it in its context and its richness and its depth. I was just so moved at what is being taught in the book of Hebrews. And it helps to understand kind of what the author of Hebrews is trying to convey. So far, he has conveyed one very simple thought, and that is this. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. It begins in chapter number 1, and it says, Jesus is better than the angels. And then he goes on and he proves that Jesus is better than the old high priests. He continues and he goes on and he says, Jesus is a better atonement than those sacrifices that were offered every single year. But Jesus is the atonement that was offered once and for all. In every case and in every scenario, Jesus is better. That's why I loved Miss Crystal's song this morning. Give me Jesus. You can have everything the world has to offer. Some may be good, probably a whole lot's bad. But I can tell you this, Jesus is always better. And that's the central theme of Hebrews. Now what we've come to at the close of chapter 5 is this idea that these Hebrew believers have in a way began to follow Christ. And they have, they're saved, they're brethren, but because of the adversity and the difficulty of leaving Judaism... They've considered the concept of maybe compromising. In other words, they were following after Jesus, but to say that Jesus is the only way, and to say that He's better than all the things we've believed in the past, to say those things brought much persecution upon themselves. And so they're considering now turning back. And even at the close of chapter 5, the the, the message comes, for when the time came that ye should be teachers, ye have need again that we return unto the, the, just the principles of Christ, the, the foundational truths, because they should have been growing, and they should have been maturing, but instead they were now considering going back. So chapter 6, the main concept of this chapter is to keep pushing forward. 
You know, the Christian life is one of advancement, not retreat. Uh, Christians take retreats all the time. We have youth retreat, couples retreat, all these things. But we need to go advancing sometimes. The Christian life is one of progress and growth and development. And so the message of Hebrews is this. Jesus is better. And for these Hebrew believers, the message here is, so don't settle for anything less than the best. That's why verse number 9 says it like this. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. Don't settle for the good. Don't settle for things that maybe not so good. Only settle for the best things. These Hebrew believers now are struggling with this concept. Jesus is better, so don't settle for anything less than the best. I guess we could take a poll this a poll this morning and without question all of us would say I may be happy with the good things in my life but I wouldn't mind some better things better things good is all right better is always gooder <laughs> we want better things and so this passage unlocks for us the way we can experience better things we'll see a few ways we can do that this morning number 1 we must have an adult salvation An adult salvation. Notice in verse number 9, the Bible says this. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. The passage assumes salvation. It assumes that you're saved. In fact, he begins in verse number 9 with the word beloved. Meaning you're part of the beloved. You're part of the brethren. You are saved. And the author of Hebrews now, in fact, in chapter 3 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Who is the letter to? It's to saved people. So now as he describes how to have a better Christian life, he says, well, I'm assuming you're saved. One of the great, I believe, errors of American Christianity is the assumption of salvation. The assumption of salvation. See, here's the problem. We all, or many of us, were born into a Christian nation. Some of us had the privilege of being born into a Christian home. When we were born, maybe just a few days later, or a few weeks later, we were in a Christian Sunday school class. And then, probably, some of us were enrolled at the Christian Academy. We're Christian through and through. The problem is, Christianity doesn't begin by nation. By address. It doesn't begin because you wear a nice JCA polo. Your Christianity must begin at birth. You say, what do I mean by that? I mean this. I mean the Bible teaches that when you are born, you are lost. You are lost. The King David, the apple of God's eye, the man after God's own heart, he said these words, In sin did my mother conceive me. I was shapen in iniquity. The very moment he came out of his mother's womb, he was a sinner. There's no original goodness about us. We come off the assembly line broken. 
we are broken at birth. And the Bible tells us, because of this birth, we need a new birth. Imagine this, in John chapter 3, which many of you know many of the verses of John chapter 3, it's a wonderful chapter, but it doesn't begin with, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, it begins with an interaction between Jesus and a man by the name of Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's like a college professor, a theologian. I mean, this guy knows all the Hebrew culture. He knows all of the customs. He knows all the rituals. He knows much of the Torah committed to memory. This man is an incredibly uh, brilliant theologian. And Jesus and him have this meeting together. And when he comes to Jesus, he begins to ask questions. And Jesus starts here. He doesn't start at the resurrection of the dead. He doesn't start at at many of the great truths that are found in Christianity. Where does he take this man who has literally PhDs in theology? Where does he take him? Birth. Why does he take him there? Because that's where everyone begins. Verily, verily, I say unto you, a man must be born of water and of spirit. And unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why does he take Nicodemus, a man who understands profound scriptural truths, to his birthday? Because Nicodemus' birth, from his mother, Nicodemus was born broken. And it is in the second birth where we are made new. We are fixed. We are repaired. That which was fractured and that which was broken, our sin nature, we are all separated from God, from our mother's womb, because we're sinners. But God uh, bears us again. I'll get the tense of that verb eventually. But God births us again into the family of God by His Spirit through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ's blood. But unless you've experienced the second birth, You know nothing of what it is of spiritual maturity. A baby goes through the process of development. So I want to be careful that we do not assume salvation. We cannot assume that because you're around the gospel, you've accepted the gospel. My friend, this morning, have you been born again? The reason I ask is because you cannot experience better things until you've experienced the first thing. Better things are for those who've experienced the gospel of Jesus, which is the best thing. And we cannot grow into maturity until we've been born. You must be born again. And it is natural that a baby grows. You understand that, right? It is unnatural. It is against nature for a child to be born and there be no spiritual development. How do we develop children? Well, a lot of times they just eat a lot of food. And you clean them up from time to time. And you make sure that they're in a safe environment, protected from uh, nature and all of its ill effects. But 
but you create for it a good and safe environment. You feed that child, and that child naturally grows. I've heard story, uh, stories of children who were made fun of uh, because they were short, and they would go to their bedroom and hang from bars and hang from beds just to stretch themselves out a little bit. You and I understand that that's probably not an actual wise deal because that doesn't make any difference in their development. How does a child grow? The same way you grow spiritually. God takes care of it. You say, what do you mean? I mean this. If you feed that child, nurture that child, create for that child a safe environment, protected from many of the pitfalls of this world, if you create that environment for that child and nourish it up, God takes care of the physical maturation of that child. You understand that, right? No mama ever says, well, son, I want you to grow up a little bit today. Well, we say that about socially and mentally. We don't say that about physically. Because what man of us could ever add one cubit to his stature by taking thought? We can't do that. Who does that? That's God's department. So how does a Christian reach spiritual maturity? Well, you feed him. You feed him. You began by feeding him milk. But eventually that child has to grow from milk to meat. And just like is the problem here for these Hebrew believers, they should have been growing, they should have been developing, they should have gone from milk to meat, but now they're thinking about going back to the first things and the the weaker things. No, that child will naturally grow if we feed that child and clean that child and protect that child. It will be a God thing that that child will develop unto maturity. If you are spiritually immature... It is not God's fault. It is either you never were born or you are not finding daily nourishment from God's Word. That's how we grow. That's how we develop. The better things of the Christian life cannot be experienced until you have adult salvation. We have a lot of infantile Christians in the church today. A lot of infants, somewhere along the way between the time that they were born and the time that they should have grown up, they've just gotten neglected, left on the street corner, no one to feed them, not feeding themselves, not not protected from this world. And because of that, we have a lot of immature believers. That's not the way God designed the Christian walk. You want better things? Begin to eat from God's Word. You want better things? Protect yourself from the harsh effects of this world. Keep yourself safe from them. But you must have an adult salvation. And notice, verse number 9 is very important. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that, if you're looking at it, what's that next word? Accompany salvation. There will be natural fruit production because of your salvation. There will be things that accompany your experiential walk with Christ. As you mature, you will grow stronger. As you mature, you will grow wiser. I can tell you one of my favorite classes was kindergarten. I really enjoyed recess and nap time. I aced those subjects. You see, at some point I had to graduate from kindergarten to go into advanced subjects. Why? Because 
the more I grew, the more knowledge I needed to face this world. We can't send kids out into the world knowing only their ABCs and one, two, threes. So as, you, as a child of God, you must mature. And as you mature, there will be naturally things that accompany salvation. So number one, we have to have an adult salvation. Number two, we'll, we'll do this one quickly because I want to spend time on the third point. We must have an active service. Now, I want to remind you, these are rather immature believers. They are somewhat negligent in their spiritual maturation process. Verse number 10, it says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward His name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Even immature believers here had fruit. Maybe not a lot of it, but they had fruit. They were loving and caring for the brotherhood, the, the, the church of Jesus Christ. They were caring for each other. They were loving each other. And by the way, love like that is a product of a relationship with Jesus Christ. To love you is to love Christ. As I love Christ, I will develop a love for you. And so they have fruit. Let me ask you, do you have fruit? Because even though they were immature... They were still actively serving. They were doing this, certainly because of the commands of Scripture. They were obeying God's Word, as it says, as we therefore have opportunity to do good. Let us do good unto all those, especially unto those of the household of faith. We ought to do good to people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. But more than just obeying the commands of Scripture, they were following the pattern of Jesus. Jesus did not come come to be ministered unto, but He came to minister and give His life a ransom for many. Jesus, probably one of the great stories of His ministry was when Jesus, the King of glory, humbled Himself and wrapped Himself in a, in a, in a servant's garment and took a wet washcloth and washed the feet of His stinking, filthy disciples, knowing full well that by the close of the evening, all of them would be offended of Him. He was a servant of men. We, ought, we too ought to be a servant. And so we follow Jesus' pattern. But we also know that Jesus is our patient. Now don't miss this, verse number 10. Which ye have showed toward His name. Well, they weren't serving Jesus in the sense of serving Jesus directly. They were obeying Jesus and they were working for Jesus, but they weren't serving Jesus Himself, but in doing their active service to the brotherhood, to the church of Jesus, they were essentially performing the act to Jesus Himself. Now, this is not one of those cop-outs where we say, you know, uh, well, we, we, anything we do, we do it as heartily as unto the Lord, so whenever we go to work, we're working for the Lord, but we are doing a good job for our employer. No, no. This is not one of those deals. This is... Jesus taught at the final judgment that there would be a time when the king would look at those that had faithfully served him and he would say these words, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Well, that sounds good. He's got an inheritance for us. He says, For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. 
Then shall the righteous answer him, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee? Or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw thee a stranger and took thee in and naked and clothed thee? Or when, was, uh, or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? In other words, we never did that. Lord, we never did the things you're talking about. When did this happen? Jesus answered them, And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Whatever Christian service you perform, Jesus says you perform it as if it were performed upon me. This week these pews were filled with about a hundred kids for vacation Bible school. We had skits, we had games, we were giving out candy and Nintendo Switches. I mean, there was more screaming and hollering in this auditorium throughout this week than there's been in the past year. I don't know if that's good on you, but that's the case. I mean, they were shouting and screaming, man, we were having a good time. Why do we do that? Because whenever we bring those little children in to hear the gospel, it's as if we were serving the Lord Himself as they sit here in this auditorium. Jesus is our pattern. Jesus is our patient. But Jesus is our power. You see, Jesus designed the church so that there would be holes to be filled by you. Compared to a body, and a body works and functions with one another, the body needs its members, and one member can't be negligent and disobey the, the mind, which is the Lord Jesus. So we all have a work, and we all have a place in His church. The Bible says, and He gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors, and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We have all been placed into the work of God. So here's the question. Are you working in your place? We draw power from the Lord as we obey Him and as we serve Him. 2 Corinthians. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things. Well, that sounds good. Always having a full bank account, always being able to eat. Man, that sounds good. You don't do it for comfort. You do it that ye may abound unto every good work. Why does God bless us? So that we might bless others. Why does God give to us? So that we might give to others. And this is our pattern. And we draw power from the grace of Christ in our own life so that we might demonstrate it to others in their life. So we see in adult salvation, we must have uh, better things, but they must begin at birth. You're born, you mature. We also have to have an active service because it's in that service we find God's blessings on our life. Have you ever considered this? Jesus is quoted by the Apostle Paul as saying, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Have you ever been on the giving end of something? It gives you the warm and fuzzies inside, doesn't it? Have you ever been on the receiving end of something where it's like, oh, I wish you guys wouldn't have gone out of your way and done that for little old me. I, we don't need it. We appreciate that. It is harder to receive in most cases than it is to give. But have you ever considered this? If you are in a position to give, that means God has blessed you. So you can't give if you don't have. And if you have, that means God has blessed you so that you may give. 
It is a lot better to take food to other people's funeral uh, arrangements than it is to have people bring food to your own funeral arrangements. You say, what do you mean? I mean, if I am able to serve in that moment, that means I'm not the one grieving at the funeral. I'm able to go comfort somebody who is grieving. If I'm able to financially meet a need in someone's life, what does that mean? It means that I don't have any financial needs in my own life, so much so that I can't give to the financial needs of their life. Consider the fact that it is more blessed to give than to receive because we have already experienced the blessings of God if we are giving. So we have an active service. And then thirdly, this is the crux of the message. We have an assured sanctuary. Verse 11 and 12. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope Unto the end. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. And what we find is these two unique words. Diligence is contrasted with slothfulness. Remember, these Hebrew believers are considering going back. They're considering going back to the old sacrificial systems. They're considering going back because it's easier to just agree and get along with everybody instead of pushing forward for Christ and living a life that's pleasing to Him. It's just easier. And so the words come here, be diligent. Push forward. Be committed. Be resolved. Don't give up. Don't surrender. Keep going for the glory of God. He says, don't be slothful. Don't be lazy. Don't evaluate the work and the adversity and say, no, it's not worth it. Don't be slothful, but be Diligent. Push forward. And that's the main idea of the message. But what are we pushing forward to? Of the full, we're pulling uh, the same diligence to the, verse 11, to the full assurance of hope unto the end. What are we pushing forward to? What are we striving for? What, are we, what is the end goal? If we're seeking better things, what is the light at the end of the tunnel? And the Bible says, the full assurance of hope unto the end. Hope. In English, this word doesn't translate well. Not that it's mistranslated, it's just our English word does not mean the same as the Hebrew word hope. Hope, in our language, means uh, uh, maybe a desire, maybe a wish, like Maybe, I hope my wife is making steak this afternoon. Right? I hope that, but I have no idea. More likely we're eating Chicken Express. But I hope it's steak. So, our hope certainly casts desire, but there's an unknown certainty of it. And maybe we'd say, this guy is our only hope of winning the game. Is he a skilled athlete? Maybe. Is he a good shooter of the basketball? Maybe. Uh, but is there still uncertainty as to whether he'll make the shot? Yes, because we just hope he does make it. But in, in this language, this hope means an expectation of a promise yet received. Meaning it's coming. There's no uncertainty about it. 
In fact, the example of Abraham is to combat the idea of uncertainty. Because the idea here is that God made a promise that Abraham would receive a son in his old age. And one day Abraham comes to God and says, God, but I only have one servant in my household and I'm getting pretty old. Eliezer, maybe you could bless Eliezer and maybe he could be the seed of my house. And and God says, no, 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 Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. Years later, he, uh, uh, Sarah comes up with a good plan and they're going to have a relationship, he and uh, Hagar, and they're going to produce a, a child, Ishmael. And it's pretty remarkable. It's the son of his old age. And so God, uh, Abraham goes to God and says, God, maybe you can use Ishmael. And God says, nope, that wasn't my plan, that was your plan. And the promise was given to Abraham by an oath. God said, I'm going to do it. And he said, I swear by my name. I believe the passage is Genesis chapter number 17, if I'm not mistaken. I swear by my own name, meaning God put His own name on the line and said, there is none other name that could be sworn by that is more binding because God is unchanging and God cannot lie. So He has these two immutable aspects of His character binding His hands to keep His promise. And so the word hope here means The hopeful expectation of a promise yet received. What is this hope? What is the hope? The Bible speaks of hope in many places. I think there's no doubt about it as the closing of the chapter comes to this topic of Jesus Christ entering into the veil. He has been made in high priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, there can be no question and there is no doubt that this hopeful expectation of a promise yet received is the promise of a completed salvation and the hope of eternal life for the believer. Your salvation absolutely begins at the day you pray a sinner's prayer or you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of your soul. That is the day of justification. And on that day you are proclaimed by God to be righteous. Not because you are good, not because you deserved it or earned it, but because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins. You are forever proclaimed by God to be clothed in the righteousness of His precious Son and you are justified from that day forward. Forward, the process of salvation begins. And it goes from justification to sanctification. You've been proclaimed righteous. And every day in sanctification, you are becoming righteous. Meaning, you start to look like Jesus. You start to act like Jesus. You want to be like Him. You're being conformed to the image of His precious Son. And before the foundation of the world, it was ordained that you, as a believer in Christ, would look like Jesus. And so we are justified on the day of our salvation. But every day you work out your salvation through the process of sanctification. Being holy as He is holy. Loving righteousness as He is righteous. Being merciful and gracious and kind and long-suffering as He is all those things. So your salvation began on the day you got saved. But the next day you lived out your salvation. And the next day you lived out your salvation. And the next day you lived out your salvation. In fact, you're living out your salvation at this very place and the very pew you're seated in now. It begins at justification and goes through sanctification and ultimately one day we graduate and experience glorification. That is that day in which God keeps His promise. That promise that was made to us long ago when we bowed our head and we said, Dear God, save
save me. I'm a sinner and I'm not worthy of heaven. But I deserve hell. But you promised to save me. And so we're justified and we're being sanctified. But one day God will glorify us. And that is the day when all of our flesh that is here on this world, that is always tempted and pulled by sin, that is the day that that is done away with. And we are glorified. We are made like Him. And brethren, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. And this corruption must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. And in that day we've been becoming like Jesus. But in that day of glorification, we will be made like Jesus. And this is the hope. This is the hope. It is an expectation of something that's coming. As we mark off days of the calendar, one day, this promise made by God, an oath forever, signed, sealed, and delivered, uh, confirmed by two immutable aspects of God, this will happen. And I want to read for you the closing thought in verse number 19. Which hope, which hope, the hope I just got done yelling about. Which hope? The promise and eventual deliverance of our eternal salvation. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Anchor. Have you ever considered that one day your name will be on someone's prayer list? Have you ever considered that all it takes is just one phone call, one diagnosis, one situation, and all of a sudden your world is rocked and changed? If we know anything as humans, it's that we are human. And a car crash, an aneurysm, a heart attack... It changes it all. What do we do in that day? When our world is falling around us. And everything is changing. What do we do? You hold on to the anchor. Because your life may be changing, but your eternal life hasn't changed. You may be getting sick, but one day you're going to be made better. And this hope we have as an anchor. Grab onto the anchor. When you can't grab onto answers, when you can't grab onto solutions, when you can't grab onto things that you know will fix it, when you don't have any of those things to grab onto, what do you grab onto? You grab onto the anchor of hope. And that is Jesus. Because Jesus is always better.